In the developed world, it is easy to take for granted that we grew up with computers. Technology is so pervasive in the United States that we have debates about how early in child development a human should be given a smartphone. Across much of Africa, there's a shortage of access to computers. Children grow up without much exposure to computers at all. Smartphones are starting to proliferate the continent, but the bandwidth limitations prevent the sort of unrestricted mobile internet usage that many of us have in the West. Tyler Cinnamon is a software engineer and the co-founder of TechLit Africa, an organization dedicated to improving technology literacy and reducing poverty in Africa. TechLit Africa takes old computers from the United States, which are no longer in use, and repurposes those computers with educational software and a downloaded subset of the internet. Then, TechLit Africa takes those computers to Africa and sets them up in computer labs. Tyler joins the show to talk through the technical and cultural challenges of building TechLit Africa. Tyler Cinnamon, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. It's great to be here. You work on TechLit Africa. Describe what TechLit Africa is. So TechLit Africa is a nonprofit uh, that I started with Nelly Chaboy last year. We take used computers from the United States and we repurpose them in communities in Africa for them to better their lives. So we found that well, Nelly has lived through this. She is a native Kenyan, and where she grew up, they don't have many resources, at least not like what I had when I grew up. If you grew up in a community like mine, you had resources all around you. Like when I was growing up, I, I learned to program just by using a computer. Like I, I had an old Pentium 2 or Pentium 4 when I was growing up, and I learned that I could mod games. So I was working on some scripts when I was very young. And it was so natural. And then that kind of continued for the rest of my life. And that's just one career. I mean, any career you can imagine, there are resources and they're endless here. And we've had them for generations. But Nellie's experience growing up was kind of the opposite, where you know some careers exist. There are things you can do with your life, but it's pretty limited. So kids think, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a pilot. I want to be a teacher. They just think of the things they see right in front of them. And then because they don't know most of those people, with the exception of teachers, their horizons are so narrow. They're kind of stuck in their, in their village. So what we're doing with TechLit Africa is we're downloading the best parts of the internet and we're putting them into schools in Africa using all of this surplus technology we have in the United States. This experience of growing up without frequent computer use, I think that even many people in the West can relate to it on some level. There are a lot of people that listen to this podcast that feel an ongoing sense of something that is often called imposter syndrome, where they they look at somebody, probably somebody like you, who started coding pretty early in your life, and they find out about software engineering maybe when they're 21 or 35 or 48 or at whatever age. And then they just look at somebody who has been doing it since they were eight years old, and they say, I'm just never going to catch up to this person. And it's a kind of isolating feeling. It can put a barrier 
between you and and success, many people have overcome that barrier. Many people that go to coding boot camps, etc. But here we're talking about a more extreme form of a lack of access to technology because even somebody like me, I started coding when I was 20 or 21. I had no idea about software engineering before then. Uh, I had no perspective on even a Hello World application. And I just remember sitting down for my first introductory computer science class surrounded by freshmen. And I was like a junior or a senior and just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm way too late to the game. And of course, I, w- I was very wrong, but it took me a long time to shake that feeling. And so we can map that to Africa and and think about the fact that many of these people don't even grow up interfacing with an email client. They don't even grow up interfacing with a keyboard. And so there is so much ground to cover in terms of giving people earlier access to computer resources. Yeah, we were talking to another Kenyan who is working as a cybersecurity. Uh, He's doing something in cybersecurity in England. We were talking to him a week ago, and he was saying something similar. He was saying that there's a lot of ground to cover. Basically, table stakes for today's workforce is you need to have experience with office products like Microsoft Word. You need to be able to edit documents. You need Excel. You got to be able to use spreadsheets. You need to know at least how to receive and send emails, right? There's some formality to these kind of things. And even today, if you're going to be in software, I think you you probably need to have some experience with LinkedIn or building up a a, a presence online. So these are all kinds of things that we plan on building curriculum for this year. I don't know if if you know about our our crowdsourced curriculum plans. Have you heard about that? No, tell me more. So one of the the projects that we're working on this year uh, is we're calling it Lessons. So it's TechLit Lessons, and our plan is to build a, an app online. So it's just Angular on top of Rails, where you can enter in simple lessons. Like it gives you, we put a WYSIWYG in it, and then you can upload different resources, be it, say you want to write a lesson for how to write a document, maybe. You want to write a resume. So we could write a, write a lesson for how do I write a, a resume, which would be very beneficial for people to get into today's workforce. So you put this lesson into our TechLit Lessons platform. And then what we can do with that, because of the way we're designing this, we can then export all the data from the back end into our local intranet. And hopefully we can build this in a way that anyone could do that. So all of these lessons are then kind of exportable, that although it's built to work on the internet in general, it also works locally on a local intranet server. This gets at one of the topics that Nelly and I discussed in the previous episode about TechLit Africa, uh, which was called Emerging Markets Kenya, if people want to look up that episode. There is a lack of widespread internet access, and so in many places in Africa, and so there is uh, this model, this model that Nelly developed, where they, I guess you maybe you developed with Nelly, uh, of setting up computer labs and setting up an intranet on in that computer lab, so it gives a sense of being on the internet but you don't necessarily need to be hardwired into the whatever the Comcast equivalent is in in Africa. Describe the first computer lab that you and Nelly set up in Africa. Sure. 
I think uh, so. To describe it, I'm I'm going to take one step back and and take you to our apartment the week before we went to build that first lab. Sound reasonable? Sure. Yeah. So we're a week away, and we have identified ten laptops. So we had maybe fifty computer donations. We we picked ten of the best ones. So we're thinking, okay, we're going to take all ten of these. We're going to pack them in our bags, and then we're going to set up a computer lab. So this is something we had never done before. We knew that. So we didn't want to pay for Windows images for each of them. So we decided we're going to use Linux. It's something I had a lot of experience in. So we started putting, we put elementary OS on each one. So we burnt a thumb drive. We we did just a standard installation. The username was Zawadi Prep. All the whole thing was very hacky, and hopefully we can nail it down this year. But once we had all of those images on all the machines, it was time to install a bunch more content. And eventually we realized that the amount of installation for each machine that we needed was too much to do by hand. So we should have used some configuration tool like Puppet or Chef at that point. But instead, what we did is we set up Nginx on a local router, and then we just curled a script from that local router and ran it on the machine. And I think it was at that point that we realized this local router that we have in our home and the the server we have running on it would be good enough to serve anything. So at that point, we we identified like the the most robust machine. We plugged a massive hard drive into it. It was a three terabyte hard drive, and then we just started pulling down everything we could. So you can you can download Wikipedia, you can download Stack Exchange like Stack Overflow, and we also pulled down a bunch of Khan Academy videos videos for kids because a lot of the kids in the school were primary school students. So we had this pile of scripts. I actually abstracted some of it away into this Ruby thing. So we had this disgusting text file that was like, uh, so it would have, it would have a route that you should curl and then it would have a type on the end. So it would be like google.com.link or something like that. And then the Ruby script would understand if it had link on the end, I do this and this with it. So this this script was running, downloading these things for days. I remember at the end of it, like we had a bunch of tasks that had to get done. Wikipedia is happening over here. We're downloading Cod Academy over here. We were trying to pull down a Ruby Gems mirror. We were trying to pull down an NPM mirror. And each of these things, like I'd look at each one and think, this one's going to take 24 hours. This one's going to take two days. This one's going to take three. And we started cutting corners here and there, like just to get this stuff in in time. So then by the time, I mean, like it's time for us to get on our flight and things are still downloading. So I just unplug everything. Like we just had to cut it. (laughs) And we we pack all this stuff into our bag. And then by the time we get there, there's some internet here and there, but you can't download Wikipedia. Like you, you can't download gigs of things. You can download like a driver or a patch for this or that. Um, So we were pretty much stuck with what we had once we got there. But after that, it was pretty simple. Like, uh, we left some instructions to set up the server. It's as easy as you plug in the hard drive. There are some manual steps. You have to mount the hard drive, but then Nginx starts on boot. And then it's as easy as that. Elementary will connect to the Wi-Fi, which we have over a home router. And you open up the browser and go to some IP address. And that's your internet in a box, version 0.1. It reminds me of when I'm about to board a plane and I'm like aggressively downloading as many podcasts as I can 
That is exactly before what the, <laughs> before the plane takes off. <laughs> a bit of a bigger scale. So, what is the experience of a student who sits down at this computer lab with this intranet that you've downloaded and stood up for people to use? So there are a few different experiences. And there's there's also, there's a difference between the experience we have right now and the experience we're aiming for. So I'm going to explain each of those. So the, the first one is, there's like a, there's the experience of the primary school students. So these are kids, they're like six to 10 years old, maybe even younger. And they're using this during the day as a part of their school routine. So the teachers will send them into the room and then this is like their computer hour. What they do is they they choose a game to play. We have a lot of games from, I think it's KDE Education. It comes bundled with Edubuntu, I believe, a Linux distribution. So we have a bunch of games, educational games from there. And the kids will open one of them up, say it's, I think it's Tux Type, or it could be uh, Potato Guy, or any of the other games we have on there. And then those games, uh, they've got a lot of loud music. They've got a lot of flashing colors, and the kids then learn to type. They learn some English words. Uh, they learn to use the mouse, like basic computer skills, the most basic things. So that's that's the first group, and hopefully we can get that in the future more educational. I would say Kid, kids pick up key, the keyboard, and kids pick up how to use interfaces much quicker than adults do. So I don't think it's necessary for them to really go through that training. So hopefully we can make it more like reinforcement learning in in the future. Really? Wait, so kids just pick up how to type? They figure it out? Well, they don't pick up touch typing, but they know what to do when they get to the computer. Like when an adult gets there, they struggle a bit more. Kids will have it figured out in a few minutes. Like Nellie's niece, we didn't even teach her how to do any of this stuff. We didn't teach her a single thing. She was just watching us do some stuff here and there. Like we're setting up the lab and she's watching. So... We haven't taught her anything at this point, and she brings four of her friends into the lab. Like, we just set it up. We haven't shown it to anyone. She brings in four friends, and she says, here, look at all the content we have. And she opens up the browser. She goes to 192.168.01, and she starts showing them all the content. And that's, that's not something that we showed her. Like, she hadn't really used a keyboard. She hadn't used a browser, but she knew how to do all of that. That's kind of what I mean. Kids pick this stuff up way faster. That's remarkable. When I talked to Nellie, the thing that really stood out to me about this this project as being kind of intimidating is the supply chain of computers. So the way that you get computers is people donate them. Everybody's got some old desktop machine that's sitting in their closet and the idea of that machine being wiped and reused and set up in Africa for an intranet that allows kids to learn everything about the world, that's pretty invigorating. And it gets it gets people motivated to get that thing out of the closet, blow the dust off of it, and figure out how to get it to you. It and then you does. have to... Fi- What's that? It, it definitely does. We've seen that a lot, yeah. But then you have to figure out how to get it to Africa. You got to get it into a warehouse. I mean, luckily... 
it's not like you're you're sending you know the newest MacBook Pro. I don't think these things are too vulnerable to theft. I, I like probably you know I don't think people look at the maybe they're somewhat vulnerable. But anyway, so you got to figure out the supply chain, and then you got to figure out how to get them to computer labs because you want to scale this thing up. I mean, you want to get computer labs everywhere in Africa. Tell me about the supply chain of computers as it stands today, and then you know maybe your vision for how to scale it. So we've been listening to a lot of Y Combinator lately. For anyone who doesn't know, Y Combinator is a startup accelerator in Silicon Valley. And they'll, if you have a good business idea that you send to them, they will give you some seed funding. I don't know if it's technically seed funding, but they'll give you some seed funding so you can start your company and then they'll give you three months of advice and a good network. So we've been watching a series on YouTube, which is their Startup School 2018 series. It's great if you ever want to start a company. But between that series and Nelly reading all of Paul Graham's essays, we're thinking now that to grow this, to to make sure that we have the biggest impact, all we need to worry about is having a few few people at a time be successful on our platform. And beyond that, most of the problems are something that we're we're kind of going to take care of when we get to them. Because we wouldn't want to over-optimize for, for certain things before we get there. It's it's a lot like an engineering problem, really. Sorry that I just avoided that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally fair. Well, I mean, I was spitballing with, with some ideas on the last episode. And, I, you know, there's tons of interesting ideas. You know, you could get, you get like, Uber drivers or Postmates people to help you with the transportation oh, yeah. of these computers from point A to point yeah. B. Yeah. There's just tons of ideas. You were saying that it would be difficult to to get people to trust this service, right? Well, I thought the bottleneck would be, and this is totally biased towards my personal experience. I thought the bottleneck would be people want their computers totally wiped before they donate them. Like I have probably two or three computers in my closet and I'm just, I don't know if they've been wiped. I don't really want to take the time to wipe them. You know, it's not worth it for me to get the, you know, $20 or $40 or the spiritual invigoration of donating them to somebody else. All those things would be great, but I just, I'm too scared that, you know, there's going to be some bit of data left on there that somebody can repurpose to launch an attack against me. You know, we, really, uh, and, we haven't seen much of that, but we see something similar. Almost every individual donor we talk to has something on their old devices. They don't know what, but they know that they want it. Hmm. I've I've even talked to a couple. That's an opportunity. Yeah, a couple people have said, and I started asking, like, would you pay $25? What about 50? Oh, my goodness. But 25, yeah, 25 a machine, I would do that. So we are going to try with a few people. We will help you get your stuff off of there if you pay. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. Yeah, that is brilliant. I will absolutely be. I would love to be a customer. Wait, so so just to be clear, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but this is so exciting to me. So just to be clear, like somebody shows up in my apartment, they, I'm like, hey, there's the machine over there, like do your thing, and they're they're like, you know, 20 minutes later, okay, I've added every file from your computer into Dropbox, and the thing is totally wiped. You can check it for yourself. That'll be twenty five dollars, please. Wow. Well, when you put it like that, why don't we just write some script that pulls off like unique files, right? If if you could identify a file that's truly unique versus a file that's just you installed Adobe and this thing's here now. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. Well, is that different than what you had in mind? 
honestly, the only thing I'm thinking about right now is building intranet version 1.0. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> like that's a hundred percent of what I'm doing. And that's kind of it. Well, let's talk about that more. Actually, no, no, no. While we're on the topic of supply chain, where are you in terms of expansion right now? Like how many computer labs are set up and how many are you trying to set up right now? Yeah, the challenge with this is that we are here in the United States fundraising. And as soon as we're done with this, we'll be over there setting them up. But we're not over there now, so we're still at one computer lab. We have enough computers now. We're calling them workstations because it gets a little more complicated. Like a tablet is one workstation or a tower plus monitor, keyboard, mice, power cable is a workstation. So um, we have enough workstations for 10 labs, assuming that we do uh, 10 machines per lab. And that gives us some wiggle room too, so that we can image things from a distance. Like it gives us some liquidity with the machines. So we have enough for 10 labs and Nelly is working on shipping right now. Our plan this year is to do all 10 of those labs. We're going to be careful with the schools we pick so that we know we have partners that we can collaborate with and iterate with. So hopefully by the end of this year, 2019, in the next six months or so, we'll have all 10 labs done the next 10. Your question was about growth, right? Like how, how are we approaching it? And Well, I'm just wondering kind of where you're at in terms of thinking about expansion. So you have this first lab set up. Are you just thinking about improving the software that's in that lab or are you scoping out the location of the next lab? It seems like there's a demand for this. So we're not going to worry about finding more schools, really. We're going to try to keep it in the same area because driving time is pretty extreme with some of the infrastructure in Kenya. For instance, to go from that first lab towards the city might take six hours, but to go the other direction, like the same distance would take a day kind of thing. So we're going to try to keep the labs local geographically. And otherwise, we're not, we're not going to worry too much about finding schools yet. So we're more focused, at least I am more focused on getting the, uh, the image that we put on the machines cleaned up and declarative and uh, getting it online and versioned and everything and getting the intranet system a little more declarative and getting that hosted online too. One of my largest goal for me with this whole project, TechLit Africa, is to take this intranet concept, which I don't know if you know, but other, other people have done a similar, a similar workflow before where they, or a similar architecture before where they set up a local intranet. The issue is they hold it as intellectual property. So most of those organizations, although they are nonprofits or they're doing it in some charitable sense, they're holding that as their own property and they don't share it. So my biggest goal is to take that same thing and open source it, just get it online so that someone in these villages, someone who helps run the school or someone nearby could set up this entire thing for as cheap as these old machines are they should be able to pull all this content down and just put it on the machines. It's not much work. And all this stuff is free online anyway. It just needs to be packaged that way. So that's what I'm focused on over this year and the next year. And would you be opposed to these people having some kind of franchise system where they pay some money and they get some computers that they can set up and then they can set up a computer lab that you know they charge people in the village like a dollar a year to use or five dollars a year to use i don't know whatever the economics would be not to put like the this is the conversation i was having with nelly is like not to put the cynical capitalist economic bent on it but 
you know, if there was kind of a franchise model, you might get the, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial mentality to come out of people and start, you know, driving the creation of these things themselves. Yeah, I have a few thoughts on that. I absolutely don't mind people doing that. That would be fantastic. The point is that the, like the means of production, when it's free to copy it, like it's just bits, there is no reason that that's not free. Like you, you can sell other services. That's fine with me. But the library of the world is free and it belongs to the people of the world. I stole that quote from someone else, but there's, there's no reason that we can't just package this up. And another, another thought I have on that. So you mentioned something. So you want to, we want, and I, I, th- I think this a lot too, and I think it's faulty reasoning. I think it's not xenophobic, but it's, it's like an elitist thinking that patrimonial patrimonialism or maybe that, that we want to inspire entrepreneurship or paternalism. That's the term. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, sorry. Sure. Okay. Sorry. The policy or practice on the part of people in positions of authority of restricting the freedom and responsibilities. No, not quite. Imper- imperial entrepreneurialism. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Um, entrepreneurial imperialism what do you what do you mean yeah yeah. let me just we can find a word eventually the idea that we want to inspire this or inspire that in people i think is faulty so we see people in poor circumstances right i've I've been thinking about this ever since i was there when i showed up in magotio let me tell a story about this so when i showed up in magotio the night sky is beautiful every night i would get stuck outside looking up at the night sky like I'm, I'm from an area around Chicago. We can see the stars, but not very well. But in Magotio, you see everything. You can see the Milky Way. The colors and the stars are so bright. So I'm out there looking up at the sky, and then I see the moon. And I'm, I've been interested in, in biology and chemistry lately, so I'm wondering what's the moon made of. So then I do what I always do. I pull out my phone. I open up Google, or it may have been DuckDuckGo at the time, but I open up the search engine. And I ask, what is the moon made of? But at that time, and this happens often, the mobile network was down. And sometimes it's down for hours at a time. And that was kind of devastating for me. I know, I know that it's a, trivial, it's a trivial question, right? What's the moon made of? But it's like that curious light bulb in me, the, the curiosity that I have, kind of just died out for the rest of the night. It may as well have been made of cheese, you know? And like I said, that's trivial for me, but for a child or for for someone growing up in these communities, that kind of curiosity is crucial. Here and in places where you have endless resources like we do, that curiosity kind of never dies out. You You get your answers on the spot all the time. And in today's age, being able to get those answers and being able to be curious and teach yourself new things are critical. I don't think that the reason areas of the world like Africa or different areas in South America or or Southeast Asia, there are a lot of areas that are poor economically. And I don't think that it's because of a lack of entrepreneurship or or certain thinking. I, I don't think that's necessarily it. I think it stems from a lack of resources. Many of those countries don't, like the European countries will have first right of refusal on their resources. And those kinds of power dynamics kind of keep them suppressed and they're never going to get their resources. But right now with Techland Africa, we, we kind of have an opportunity 
to take some of the most powerful and magnifying resources that have ever existed. And we have the opportunity to give those resources to them. We are leveling the playing field. So like I've seen, I've seen videos of in African villages where there's like solar panels built nearby and people in the village will go and, and destroy the solar panels because they're kind of like, what is this, you know, thing? I, I don't want this thing. It's new and different. And, you know, I don't get this out of here. Uh, and I mean, we even see this in, in America, whenever there's a new technology that is somewhat disruptive. There's always people who it makes them so uncomfortable at a very deep level that they just want to badmouth it and destroy it. And yeah, why uh, are you guys looking at your phones all the time? These phones, they're just really Yeah. Funny. So does that impulse exist at all in, in any of the communities you've engaged with? Absolutely. I haven't seen it in a hostile sense, but I've seen it in a much more docile way. Like I, we heard a story recently from a couple who used to volunteer in Ghana. So they would set up computer labs almost the same way we do. And they were in the same town almost their their entire time there. But they saw some engineers, I think from Minnesota. There were some engineers from Minnesota that show up in this small Ghanaian village. And these engineers developed this new kind of oven for the villagers. I, for, I forget what the oven was for. Maybe it was for making charcoal. Uh, but they developed this oven that was like 10 times more more efficient than the older method of doing it. So for the few weeks that they're there, the villagers are using this new oven and it's great. Like outputs way up. They have more charcoal than they know what to do with. But then as soon as the engineers leave, like the next day, the people go back to doing it the old way. So this couple that Nellie and I were talking to, they went and asked the people using the oven, why did you go back to doing it the old way? And they said the our neighbors were something like the other people doing this no longer have a job. They were, they were thinking like, this is bad for the community or like you said, it's disruptive. So they, yeah, it's, it's that same kind of mentality where change is bad or it's like you're hurting other people, right? When it's really just like a, a new kind of friction in the job market. I think there are a lot of problems here. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going in a useful direction. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think whatever the problems there, you have no choice but to contend with them. And I'm, I'm sure the contention will be overcome eventually. It sounds like, let's talk a little bit about how the communities and the adoption of the computer, how many computer labs have you set up at this point? Just one? Just that first one, yeah. Yeah. So how is the usage of that computer lab? So this is something else that we that we need to work on. We've found that people like videos more than they like text, and that makes sense. So the usage has, has gone down since we left, uh, and we don't have exact numbers. So that's something that we're hoping to solve this year. We want to get better, better metrics, even when we're not around, um, to know what are people using, what are they getting benefit from, and how are they using it. So I think one of the things that we're going to track, like our North Star, I think is what we're calling it, our North Star, is going to be something like weekly active users. So if someone is learning to be a web developer, so they're coming to our lab to study web development, 
as long as they're coming back every week, we're considering that our weekly active user. Like that is the most important customer to us. We, we want people that are coming in and they're learning a new skill and they're able to use the lab repeatedly every week. So that's, that's something that we're going to be working towards this year and next year. We want to develop that North Star so we know that the lab is being used and people are getting benefit from it. And, and that's what we plan to grow is the weekly active use. So right now, I think our weekly active use would be like zero. It may be misleading, but the local high school kids will come in and they'll watch videos sometimes. They'll read some things like supplementary studies. And uh, the kids in primary school will use it every other, every other day, maybe. Uh, but that's a part of their curriculum. They're kind of forced to. I, I think almost every metric that we have right now is misleading around that. But hopefully we can get our North Star tuned coming up. Why would the metric be zero today if there's people that are using the lab? Because they don't come back every week. It'll I be, see. I see. Yeah, it'll be fashionable this week, not next week. Or uh, maybe they're having a hard time today or whatever it is. Why is that? Like. I mean, when I first got a computer, I was like, well, this is just the thing that I'm going to spend all of my time on from now on. Yeah, you you just reminded me of, uh, I forget the name of this program. There was this old program, it got a lot of hype around 2000, I think, where this guy developed a new kind of machine, a new laptop. It had a crank on it originally. So Right, yeah. I remember that. Awesome. Uh, do you remember the name? I don't remember the name. Oh, darn. Okay. The theory was, if this machine is your personal machine, then you get more value from it, or, or you're, you're, more, you're more motivated to maintain it and to use it, right? I think that was his theory. And that, that may be tied to this. Our, our labs I've are- looked it up. This is, this is the, o, the OLPC-XO, yeah. is what it appears to exactly. be. Exactly. The XO was developed by Nicholas Negroponte, a co-founder of MIT Media Lab. Yes, absolutely. I hear that it's still going, actually, that they have a small user group and they're very content with the people that are using their machines. We'll probably get in touch at some point. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Okay, so so continue. Why does it why does this remind you of the, the crank book? Because of his he had some motivation that if people own their machines, then if they own them and it's like their personal property, then they're more motivated to use them and to maintain them. And that's something that we lack with our program. Our, ours are kind of community-owned. I see. I see. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I was never really motivated to go to, like, the library and, and mess with the computer at the library. Okay, well, so you've said you're focused on figuring out the greatest curriculum possible. So what's your sense for what you're going to need I guess, first of all, why is that your focus? Uh, why is the improvement of the, the curriculum or the improvement of what you're actually going to install on these computers, why is that so important to you? So our goal is to level the playing field and in a sense to lift these communities out of poverty. And if someone in these communities, so we're, we're thinking that the most effective way to do that is to get these people one of two things, either remote work, because those salaries can be relatively very high, or if not remote work, kind of getting these technologies adopted in their communities, be it in business, in education, or in government. So using these machines to train up the skills needed for remote work, or using these machines to foster 
and cultivate the adoption of technology, we believe is the most effective way to lift these out of lift, lift these communities out of poverty and ultimately to level the playing field for them. So that's that's why I think that building up the curriculum and the content we have on the machines is is the the most important thing. And once you get that curriculum improved, how are you going to deploy it and get people to start learning to code, for example? Like, what's the roadmap to getting people to, to explore these machines in a way that's productive to them? Okay, so we have a plan. And of course, this will fall apart the moment we start using it. <laughs> that's okay. But our plan is we use this new TechLit Lessons platform. And the very first step is someone comes to the lab and they're kind of smacked in the face with a list of different careers. Like they're given a bunch of inspiration. It says something like, here's how biology works and you can be a biologist. Or here's how mechanical engineering works and you can do this. Or here's how software engineering works and you can do this. So they're hit with these lessons that are like, here's the awesome life you can have. And then at the very end of each lesson, it's kind of a router to the rest of our content. It says, here are the 10 books that you can read or the 10 video series that you can, you can watch to learn how to be a software engineer. So our plan is to use that platform kind of as a router to the rest of our content. And then also to put some other inspirational stuff in there like TED Talks, any videos that, 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 that would kind of keep you going. For me, there's this one synthetic biology video I always watch where the guy from MIT, I think his name is Chris Boyd, he talks about how you can program E. coli cells and how they packed they packed uh, the programming of these cells into a programming language. So I could write the code and then I could send it off to be encoded into, sequenced into DNA. And then I could have my own E. coli cells programmed for my machine. So that, like videos like that, really inspiring things that you can do. I think those, that's kind of our plan in a nutshell, is to get people inspired, to show them the different directions they can take this, and then to, to point them towards content that would help. That sounds like it would work. So what, more specifically, are the updates to the curriculum? You've got this, this lessons platform. Is, or is there a, a certain coverage of, of ideas? Have you already laid out the schema or the outline of ideas that you're going to be exploring in this updated curriculum? So we haven't yet. This is going to sound awful. My plan at this point is to find other places on the internet with open licenses with this kind of thing and just scrape them. So like the first prototype is just, hey, is this useful to you? And then if it is, we can start tailoring it. And if it's not, we pivot a little bit. But but otherwise, um, so we've got that lessons platform. We have yet to bake that into our image. So we'll need to we'll need to run that Rails app and compile the Angular during our image build uh, and get that packed onto our little USB drive. So there's still some work yet on our end to get that Rails app and the Angular app to run in local mode instead of internet mode. But aside from technical things, like we could we could put those things off and just hack this thing together. I just, my, my instincts tell me that that will be a kind of a, a crucial piece of infrastructure for us moving forward. So I'm motivated to, to get those things together early. Let's imagine there are people listening who actually we don't have to imagine I'm I'm quite confident there are people listening who would want to help in some way 
what are the ways that that people can help you, either financially or or otherwise? Okay, so right now the biggest way people can help us is financially. I think that's the easiest for us and probably for them too. But there are other ways also. Unfortunately, I haven't put in the effort yet. I, I should say we, because Nellie hasn't either. I can blame her some. We haven't put in the effort yet to properly share this, the source of like our image and our, our apps. I mean, it's it's all up on GitLab, but it's like a pile of scripts. And I would hate to put that on someone else without some kind of documentation. But we'll we'll work on open sourcing our tech stuff at some point this year. And then people can help with that. Uh, but in the meantime, we had an evangelist. I should give him a shout out. We had an evangelist from Vancouver who, out of the blue, he heard your episode and he got in touch with Nelly and said, I'm giving a talk in San Diego next week. I'm printing this shirt that says Techlet Africa. And I'm going to be promoting you during my book signing and my talk. Um, <laughs> That kind of evangelist evangelism, if you're so inspired, would be super helpful. Have you set up like a Shopify that you could set up like a Shopify and so so that people could buy those kinds of shirts? People would buy the shirts. I think so. I mean, that guy was inspired to to set up a shirt him himself. He, you know, that's a, that's a pretty easy. What's that? He, he just he just on his own called us and said, "I'm printing it." Right. Right. I mean, if somebody is, I mean, I don't, I don't imagine he has like a t-shirt printer in his house. That's really easy to just like set up. He probably like went on to one of these, you know, Vista print or something and, and printed his own t-shirt. But you can set up Shopify. It's pretty easy. You know, you just like upload a JPEG and, uh, and people pay you, you know, $25 for a shirt. And it's really expensive. It's a really expensive t-shirt because, you know, they, they print it on demand, but you don't have to hold any inventory. So that might work. That could work. I don't know. I don't know if it would be profitable. Shopify is like a hundred bucks a year or something like that, or maybe more. Well, so like I said, we've been fundraising a lot. So that kind of avenue uh, seems like a good long-term approach, actually. Some, some kind of merchandise that people could wear to evangelize what we're doing. That does seem like a good long-term approach. We've been getting a lot of individual donations. So if you have deep pockets and you'd like to help We'd love to talk to you. We've also gotten a few recurring donations from engineers. Maybe they have $20 a month or $10 a month, but that goes a long way for us. That would cover our DigitalOcean bill, or uh, it would cover our cost of storage, or even our cost of living, which we haven't even come close to touching. We haven't even started. There's certainly a lot more fundraising to be done. I think those cloud providers, I mean, depending on how much, I'm sure you got a lot to work on, but I think those cloud providers do have some deals for nonprofits, but I may, I could be wrong. I've been reaching out to DigitalOcean. Yeah. So how does your experience working on tech, by the way, so this is full time for you? You're doing this full time? Full time for both of us. Yeah. We decided at the point where our apartment was full of computers, we had to start moving furniture. We literally took furniture out and and just left it in the alley because we didn't have room because there were too many computers in our apartment. And that's when we decided to do it full time. How does your experience working on TechLit Africa compare to your work as a software engineer for a company? Oh, well, it's, it's certainly a lot more motivating. So as an engineer, I was writing Clojure for a financial company called Op Loans in Chicago. 
the culture there is fantastic. Like I could not imagine a better engineering culture there. The company was very supportive. It was pretty lax. I guess I could imagine a more a better engineering culture, maybe that was a little more motivated. Everyone there is pretty relaxed. But corporate jobs, like corporate software jobs, are pretty cushy. The money's great, but there's no raw motivation. This is so motivating to work on something like this, where it feels like you're attacking one of the world's big problems, and there's n- nothing quite like it. I really recommend this kind of work if you can find it. This kind of work is the best. Well, Tyler, it's been really fun talking to you. Do you have anything else to add about TechLit Africa or your mission? Definitely check out our website. That would be TechLitAfrica, no dashes, no spaces, dot org. So TechLitAfrica.org. And you can follow us on all of the social medias like Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn. Yeah, I, I think that's about it. Okay, Tyler. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Wow.